We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you independent and interesting science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. My name's Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Hannah McCleary and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording, the Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita. And I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Nicole Hill, a wonderful woman in science, who we recently featured in our Diversity in STEM gallery, which you can find online or via social media. Nicole's research focuses on mapping biodiversity to inform decisions about marine environments. And if you, listener like me, don't know very much about marine science, I can assure you that this is going to be a very insightful and informative episode as we find out why we would consider mapping biodiversity um, as an important thing to do. So Hannah, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest today? Dr. Nicole Hill is a quantitative ecologist and senior lecturer based at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. So hi, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Um, Do you think you could start off by actually explaining sort of some of the basic terms? So actually what a quantitative ecologist is and does for some people that may not know, like myself? Thanks, Hannah. First of all, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Quantitative ecologist. Yes, it's an interesting term, isn't it? So basically, I'm a marine ecologist, so I'm interested in the biology of the marine environment and how all the organisms um, interact and live together. Um, quantitative, the quantitative aspect of it is that quite a large part of my research involves using um, uh, complicated statistical models to answer questions about ecology. But in fact, these days, I guess most ecologists are quantitative. Um, All of us rely on some sort of analyses to answer our uh, scientific questions. So you're really interested in the types of things, like species, that live within a marine environment and how they all make up an environment together and like interact, essentially. Or um, is it a specific environment of marine that you're interested in? I guess the marine environment is basically our oceans, so that's a very broad area, so ranging from our coastal areas that most of us interact with, the shallow environments, out to the deep sea, which is a bit harder to access, um, requires bigger vessels, scientific um, surveys, and really we know much less about. So interested in all of those areas and um, what organisms you can find where, because there are still plenty of um, plenty of organisms to d- to discover in the deep sea. Um, we've not been everywhere, clearly, um, and how they interact with each other and the environment. So, why are certain animals where they are? Uh, Nicole, what first motivated you to work and study in marine science? Uh, I grew up in uh, Sydney, about an hour away from the ocean. So. When we did go to, to the ocean and the beach, it was just this, you know, wonderful adventure. And I think from an early age, I, I was pretty hooked. And I mean, still today, I don't do as much diving as I'd like to, but it's probably the place where I feel most at home in the world, on top of and underneath the ocean. So it's just where I was meant to be, I think. 
That's awesome. And do you think that maybe, like, is it that aspect that you're talking that there's so much we don't know about the marine world? Like, there's so much discovery still to be made. Do you think that's kind of been a hook for you of, like, the unknown as well as it's being this wonderful world that you feel very at home in? Yeah, certainly there's plenty still to discover. But also what we already do know is just absolutely fascinating. So the sorts of animals that live in the sea, and particularly on the sea floor, are like, you know, completely different to anything that's on land so you know the way that they work you wouldn't think that some of these animals could actually be alive and they are you know they pump water around their body um, to move in the case of things like sea urchins and um, sea stars so that's you know pretty 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 amazing really yeah I always think it's like completely out of this world species that particularly the uh, ocean floor I don't know grew up watching Disney and uh, I definitely think of you know finding Nemo and that kind of stuff and you think of the real deep dark trevises and the types of creatures that you see I'm just like surely that's not but it's very captivating to think about how vast marine life is and I think it is often beyond what we could even imagine that's right there's the sheer diversity of it awesome well you're listening to that's what I call science stick with us for part two and we'll ask Nicole about how she conducts her research and what her findings mean for protecting marine areas You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about marine science. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Dr Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Dr Nicole Hill from IMAS. Uh, Nicole, you've done a lot of work mapping diversity in temperate reefs. How do you actually do this sort of work and you know what sort of methods do you use? Can you sort of explain a little bit of that aspect of your work? Yeah, sure. So it depends really how, how deep we're trying to to map. So when you're mapping shallow areas, um, you can do that by diving. So you just essentially lay out a transect on reef and swim along it. And, you know, there's a a whole program at IMAS that is dedicated to doing that around uh, around Australia. But when you move into sort of deeper waters, so more than, say, 30 metres or so, you can't really dive anymore. Uh, it's too deep, you can't stay down long enough. And so you yeah, need to move to things like um, underwater videos, um, camera imagery, autonomous underwater vehicles. So these are essentially vehicles that look like submarines or tor- torpedo pods, two torpedo pods attached together and they hold instrumentation in the middle, so cameras and navigational systems and all sorts of uh, very sophisticated electronics. Um, and then they take photos of the seafloor and so we can see what's there that way. And the other way that we sort of survey these deeper environments is also using baited underwater videos. So these are exactly what they sound like. They're essentially a big frame and they've got a bait arm attached out the front and the camera's looking at that bait arm and then the bait obviously attracts fish and then we look at the video and we count the fish that we see across the video. Do you know if like certain types of bait will only attract certain species like if you don't know what you're looking for how do you know what type of bait to use well that's a good question so uh there's earlier on there was a fair bit of research on different types of baits and what sort of fish that attracts and the sort of standard bait the accepted bait that's used pretty much around the country now is pilchards so you crush up a kilo of pilchards and put it in the bait bag and that's good because it's an oily fish and the scent i suppose disperses a long way um, and attracts a great diversity of fish. 
Okay, that's really interesting. So then the other question I had about the methods you use is it sounds a lot like you create, um, you capture visual material that of potentially quite large areas. That sounds like a lot of data. Is that visually processed by someone or are there some computer methods to turn that into something or is it a very laborsome task? Well, that's an excellent question. So currently most of it is done manually. Wow. So basically go through and we tag if we're looking at the video we tag the fish that we see or if we're looking at images of the sea floor we either lay a grid over it or circle um, what we see the organisms that we see but there's actually a really strong and burgeoning push towards um, AI sort of help here so there's lots of lots of research in this area it's reasonably new in the marine field so it's been applied for a long time image recognition in other fields but it's just starting to be applied successfully in the marine environment and the marine environment's a little bit harder to detect things because even when you're looking at it on, on an image sometimes it's hard to know what it what it is you're actually looking at so for example it could be a sponge or it could be in a city and it's actually hard to tell unless you've got the actual animal in front of you yeah but i mean even just to speed up the effort of being like there is something in this image it would be quite useful from that perspective and it, it has been used in that context yes yeah that's really cool so often when you go out and collect this type of data is does that mean that you're like is it ever real time where you know you've got a camera down on the seafloor and someone is watching from the ship or is it usually um, a vessel is sent out and collects data and then somebody back in a lab on land and analyzes that. Well, that, that kind of depends, I guess, on the system and the question and how much detail you're trying to get to. So if you're using an autonomous underwater vehicle, basically you put the vehicle down, it goes off and does its pre-programmed path and then it pops back up when it's finished and you collect it and you download all the imagery and then, then you process it. But if you're using something like a towed video or towed um, still cameras operated off the back of a bigger vessel using a winch, um, sometimes you'll be looking at it in real time. Well, you're always looking at it in real time because you don't want... Someone needs to operate the winch, you don't want it to hit the seafloor. But sometimes uh, you can people score it at the same time. But usually that's for sort of basic thing to get more detailed scoring. You'd normally need to do that back in the lab. Yeah. Very cool. Such a diverse um, type of data that you collect. Nicole, have you discovered anything interesting from your research in this area? Around temperate Australia, it's just a, a amazing, really. The patchy reefs and the diversity of... Um, the animals that you find on these reefs and then the diversity of fish that the fish life that these reefs attract so you might be um, you know going along and all you're seeing in the video or the images is sand 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 and then all of a sudden you come upon this little oasis of reef where all the um, organisms are living like sponges and so on and then all of those attract these diversity of fish like you know Mulwong and stripy trumpeter and and all sorts of things and that's really cool so that's around temperate australia but you know, around Antarctica, we've got a, a similar project where we're mapping the seafloor and just the range of, you know, incredible life that you find down there is really mind-blowing. Is there, um, so with the type of work that you do, Nicole, looking at, as a quantitative ecologist, which tells us, like, what is in a specific area or an environment, does that help us also identify, like, why something might be in one area and another? Because it was really interesting that we were saying that essentially it's kind of like these sand deserts underwater and there's nothing and then all of a sudden there's a lot of life and it, for me that's it's like well why is there nothing here and then lots there does does your work or the people you get to work with help unpack some of that or understand what 
results in these such diverse communities of um, marine life? Yes, and so that's one of the sort of core areas that we're trying to understand. So what are the environmental factors that drive um, this, the types and distribution of biodiversity? So obviously it's really hard to get out and on vessels and actually put down cameras and autonomous underwater vehicles and whatever else um, to survey everywhere. So we have to use the information that we get from these surveys which is sort of sparse and patchy around the country or around the area that we're surveying. And we match them with environmental data from sources such as like satellites and oceanographic models which have broader coverage. And then we can see what what environmental factors correlate with where we find the higher diversity or different types of habitats and organisms. Um, And the other key sort of uh, input into that is bathymetry information, so where we've mapped the seafloor because that's obviously quite important for determining where we find certain types of animals. And once we do that, once we develop those statistical models, which have the correlations between the environment and where we find certain organisms, then we can sort of fill in the gaps essentially. So we can take the sparse biological data that we have, we know what's there, and we can develop these maps and um, fill in the gaps to the areas that we haven't been. And we can use that sort of information to then understand to develop habitat maps or species maps or biodiversity hotspot maps and then we can understand what's where and we can give that information to managers so that they can see on a map where the important areas are and they can that can help them decide on spatial management which might be measures for conservation or um, aspects of uh, areas that fishers might want to avoid or areas that might be fine for um, fishing activities and those kind of questions. So if you were um, essentially determining what types of marine life are in a specific reef, but then you can't just go everywhere around Australia and all the reefs. Um, so what you're saying is you can then use other data like other projects that have mapped the seafloor or identified areas that might be similar to where you found this marine life, would you then be like, well, we could expect to find similar life in this area? Is that what you mean? And that yes. yeah, you might test and go and look and see, oh, yeah, we were correct. Like, that yeah, is that's there. right. That's, that's yeah, safe. that's cool. So then um, with that lens of being like, it helps you essentially make an informed guess of what life might be like in other areas that you haven't been, which is a good use of resources. Do you also, in your work, look at the change in marine life within a specific ecosystem over time? Um, Because it's such a new area that, you know, we're just trying to get a handle of what's there first. How do we also keep up with seeing how that's changing um, around Australia over time? I mean, what instantly comes to mind is the Great Barrier Reef and that we have a lot of information about that, it seems. Another one that's a big giant kelp forests. We've got a lot of information on how they're changing as waters are warming. But does some of your work also include that or is it like that discovery frontier phase? Uh, No, some of the work that I have previously been involved in has been looking at um, developing monitoring programs. So for some of the areas in the offshore Australian marine parks where, again, they're vast and we have small amounts of information. So the first sort of pass is going in there and developing baselines. So what do we have in there exactly? Where is it? And then developing uh, monitoring programs for how you might monitor to look for changes. You know, what, what 
are you going to monitor? Are you going to look for striped trumpeter? Are you going to look for banded mulwong? Uh, are they good indica- indicators of how things are changing through time? And how often do you need to go there? And how will you go and um, survey for them? What's the best technique? And those kind of questions. Awesome. Stick with us for part three as we take a deeper dive into Nicole's work in Antarctica. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Dr Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Dr Nicole Hill from IMAS at the University of Tasmania. So Nicole, we discussed this a little bit earlier, sort of had a little bit of an introduction into it, but um, some of your work is based um, on research in Antarctica. So what kind of work does this involve? What sort of things do you do? Um, Do you want to sort of explain that aspect of your work? Yeah, so it's a a little bit of a continuation of the sorts of work that we were doing around Australia. So our team is interested, again, in um, understanding where the biodiversity is, how it relates to the environment and how it has changed or it might change into the future. So uh, one of our big current projects is looking at mapping seafloor diversity around Antarctica. Um, And another one is looking at some of the longer-term data sets that we have on fish and um, zooplankton, which are tiny animals that float around near the surface of the water, how they've changed through time. How do you look at something that changes through time if you haven't, like, do you take samples to look back, like, from um, ice samples or, like, how do you look at something that's changing over time or is it, like, literally going back every year? So there are a couple of... um, data sets that we have access to that have been recorded um, for about 20 or so years, which is a really great time series. So one of those are um, bottom fish around Herder McDonald Island. So that is a little tiny outcropping in the middle of essentially nowhere in the Indian Ocean. Um, And it's an important area because it hosts a diversity of... um, diversity of life in general because it comes out of the ocean um, to shallow depths from very deep. Um, There's a lot of um, primary productivity which is essentially plants, uh, marine plants I suppose that live in the the surface of the ocean that feed the um, food, food web essentially and so that diversity and high primary production then flows through to all sorts of animals such as um, seals and birds and um, large fish such as uh, Patagonian toothfish which are uh, a a fishery species for Australia. Oh cool I didn't know that. So in the last part of the show you were just talking about how um, you know diving as any person diving might be a part of data collection but once the waters are deeper than like 30 meters it's not possible when mapping the seafloor in antarctica like how deep roughly could we be talking and is some of it involving diving still because that seems so alien to me like i'm like surely that's cold (laughs) absolutely so so as part of my phd i was actually really lucky to be involved um in a program that was uh, diving in Antarctica. That was obviously around shallow environments and that was a a different sort of question. It was looking at human impacts um, around stations. Um, And yes, the the water temperature is like minus 1.8 degrees, so it's pretty cold. (laughs) Um, So we were diving in dry suits with um, full 
um, full face masks essentially and communications to the surface and um, airlines to the surface um, and all going well you didn't actually get wet unless you sprung a leak um, but yes that was an incredible incredible experience um, diving in Antarctica so I was that's was mad that's like a riddle how do you go diving without getting wet <laughs> go to Antarctica <laughs> <A> dry suit <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but once we get once we get deeper than that then we're starting to to move into toad videos and uh, that's essentially like we we're talking about before where you have a, a video off the back of a ship um, and it's operated by a winch and it's trying to fly about two metres above the seafloor and um, taking either video and or still images um, of, of the seafloor. And how deep, like roughly, would the seafloor be in Antarctica? So it's, it's, it's quite, quite variable. So the interesting thing about Antarctica is the continental shelf is deeper than you'd find elsewhere in the world. So off Australia, the continental shelf is about gets to about 200 metres and then you start to get uh, a really steep uh, slope the continental slope and then you get into the sort of abyssal areas which are you know 2000 plus sort of sort of meters Um, but in Antarctica things are a little bit different the continental shelf is actually quite deep it can be up to eight or nine hundred meters deep in some places and that's because of the weight of the ice that has been sitting on it in the past Um, so it's it's really quite quite different to elsewhere in the world so we're talking quite deep on the continental shelf in Antarctica in places that's awesome. That's mad. So for you, what are the, some of the highlights of working in Antarctica or, you know, considering this fairly peculiar place on <laughs> Earth as like a, an environment that we would look at? Well, it's, it's just this, it's an absolutely incredible place. It really is like nowhere else on Earth. You know, um, about half the animals that you find there on the seafloor are literally found nowhere else on Earth. There's this huge, huge diversity of wildlife um, down there, not just in terms of what people think of in whales and seals and penguins, but on the seafloor as well. You've got giant sponges, you've got um, giant sea squirts, you've got giant sea spiders, and I keep saying giant, and that is key because when you have animals growing in colder water, they take longer to grow but they live longer and so essentially you get this gi- ten- tendency for gigantism so for example I, I one of my you know, memories I'll always hold on to is um, when we um, when we went diving and there was a, a sea spider which does actually look like a sea spider hence hence the name and it was as in like it just looks like a spider that's underwater yeah. that's mad wow okay yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was bigger than my hand. It was just enormous. So, so yeah, the, it's it's really special place. And what's a sea squirt? A sea squirt is, um, well, it's an obsidian, but that probably doesn't help. <laughs> I have no idea what an obsidian is. <laughs> um, so... so, coming from Sydney, um, the Kanjavoy, so the... The organisms that you find sitting on the seashore and you go and poke them and they squirt out water. So, so that's a sea squirt and you have all sorts of um, different sorts of sea squirts. That's awesome. So then thinking about how diverse and unique that environment is in Antarctica, why is this work particularly important potentially with a rapidly changing climate globally as well? It's really important because Antarctica is a unique place. Um, it, the Antarctic ecosystem or the Antarctic climate system 
plays a large role in the climate of the rest of the world. So what happens in Antarctica when you have um, ice sheets melting, etc., etc., affects Australia. Um, but also, more than that, if we lose some of this biodiversity in Antarctica, that has consequences for um, what we call ecosystem processes as well. So the ecosystem functions a certain way and once you lose key parts of that, that function, it functions differently and that differently might not be as good as it is now so that has implications for things like fisheries, it has implications for things like um, capturing carbon. So it's really important to know what we have where now and why it's there so then we can understand how it might change into the future. And as you said, some parts of Antarctica are changing really rapidly and other parts are changing in a different way. So is that data set that you were talking about earlier, that you know, where some of it is long-term long data, is that helping you kind of uncover how changes might have happened over the last couple of decades? Or um, is it really on that frontier of going there on a voyage to discover essentially what's happening in real time? So um, those long-term data sets were sort of at the beginning of that project, but yes, um, those data sets will help us unravel how things have changed in the last couple of decades, you know, which species have changed um, in relation to what environmental factors, is it sea surface temperature, is it changes in sea ice, is it something else? Um, awesome. That sounds really valuable. So I suppose just to finish up, what do you hope will be like the overall outcome of this work that you're doing in Antarctica with this data and future projects? Well, I think the work that we're doing is actually really important because it provides um, a solid evidence base uh, for managers to make decisions about how they prioritise areas um, for conservation, what they might expect under future climate scenarios. Um, it helps them make decisions about resources. Um, so I think that's actually... Really, really important outcome f from our work. Awesome. It sounds like extremely important work, and it also uh, just sounds phenomenal that you've been diving in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I was very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much to my expert guest, Dr. Nicole Hill, and also to my co host, Hannah McCleary, for today's episode. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman, and thank you for listening. That's what I call science. If you did like it, please remember you can get an episode every week by subscribing via our website, that's science.org, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.